From Georgetown University, this is Seeking Peace. I'm Alain Verveer. This season, we collaborated with the United Nations Department of Peace Operations and Our Secure Future to explore the important role women play in bringing lasting peace to communities, whether through grassroots activism, peace negotiations, journalism, politics, or as uniformed peacekeepers. In our final episode this season, we are examining the challenges and complex realities that uniformed women peacekeepers face. I, I then do realize in as the first female general here in the Office of Military Affairs that I have a responsibility to all those female and male peacekeepers to be a, a role model as well. It can be done and, and it will be done again. That's the important thing. Um, I'm hoping that there will be far, a lot more people, women coming up behind me as well, who will be the second, the third, the fourth, and they will then have a freedom and less of a burden on them just to behave uh, and be the leaders that they are. That was General Maureen O'Brien. General O'Brien serves as the Deputy Chief of Military Affairs at the United Nations. Her job is to support the military advisor, specifically in mission-related military advice on a wide variety of issues across the UN. This, however, is just her most recent position. She joined the Irish Defence Forces back in 1981 and has served seven international operations. For today's episode, General O'Brien sat for a conversation with Dr. Robert Egnall. Dr. Egnall is a senior fellow with the Security Studies Program and the Georgetown Institute for Women, Peace, and Security. He is currently Vice Chancellor of the Swedish Defense University and Professor of Leadership and Command Control. He is also the author of Women and Gender Perspectives in the Military, an International Comparison. As two individuals with backgrounds in military study, one a military officer and the other an expert in gender perspectives in the military, the two engaged in a robust discussion on the challenges of navigating a male-dominated field, the struggle to achieve meaningful gender parity, and the damaging effects of stereotypes. Well, hello everyone and a warm welcome to General O'Brien. Good morning or good afternoon to everybody. So you started in 1981 within the Irish Defence Forces. Can you talk a little bit about how, how you came to that decision? Yeah. So um, when I did my second level education um, and when I came out of it, there were no opportunities for women to join the forces because women weren't inducted into the Irish Defence Forces until 1980. So I went straight to university and I did a science degree and then subsequently did a postgrad in education and in fact took up a job as a science teacher for a few months before I joined the Defence Forces. So as I said then, I saw the advertisement in the same way as I saw other advertisements for teaching. I wasn't really invested too much in teaching, but it's something I sort of drifted into, we'll say. But I saw the opportunity of joining the cadets as basically the officer uh, military college as, first of all, a physical challenge, because at that point in university, I had been what we called a sports star for three consecutive years. I was an athlete and a volleyball player. So naively, I thought this would be a great opportunity to somehow um, prove my physical that I could 
could do something like this, could join the military. And I should say that I had seen some military officers who were in, in the university that I went to as well. And uh, in general, I admired the way they behaved and admired and was intrigued by the work they did. So um, I joined then as a cadet in 81, he said November 23rd of November. And as I said, I had the teaching job and they said they keep it open for a year for me in case I made a mistake. And um, I'm still thinking about it 41 years later. So, <laughs> yeah. But anyway, I, I joined and, you know, found cadetship quite uh, challenging in a lot of respects. The age group groups were from 18 to 23. Uh, at that time, I was 21. In fact, I celebrated my 21st birthday two days before I joined the Defence Forces. And I was determined through all that time to make sure that I could do what I was supposed to do. That as a woman, I could do the same work, train the same way. And, you know, it was physically challenging and demanding. I suppose looking back on it now, it's hard to say. It's actually the combination of tiredness, physical and mentally, mentally challenging work that made it so difficult. But at the same time, you make such deep friendships at the, fr- from that. It's like the, there were 49 of us that started, six women in that group. And interesting that it is an integrated training we were doing at the time, as we integrated with men. And then uh, I was commissioned two years later and I was sent to Cork, which is a small, small place south of Ireland, as an infantry officer. And I took the very first opportunity to go overseas that I could because for the Irish Defence Forces, that's one of our roles is overseas in, uh, for the UN. But I, I was also wondering, because you said six out of 49, and I'm assuming this is very early in the integration of women in, in the Irish Defence Forces. Uh, what was that like, uh, uh, being among a handful of, of women and also the, that very first generation of women entering the armed forces? What, was that or- organisation ready for that? You know, um, we kind of had the idea, the six of us, that whether they weren't or, were or not ready, we were here. You know, we're doing this. So that's how we worked. Um, um, They weren't, I think, as we were going through, they were looking at the curriculum to see whether or not we would do all of it or some of it. And and so at a stage when we were doing, we'll say, infantry support weapons, they actually took us out of the training and we did something else. And um, it really hurt us very deeply. But ultimately what we did is we did that training subsequently when we came out of, um, when we were commissioned because those skills were available. But I think it wasn't until, may say six or seven years later that there was officially rec- recognition that it was 100% integrated. All um, positions in the Defence Forces were open to females on an equality of opportunity basis. So. You know, it was a work in progress and we were trying to do our best to prove, I suppose it was an extra burden on us, that we could uh, and could do this and that we ought to be able... I, I, I view it as a rights-based issue. I have a right to to join the Defence Forces if I like and I have a right to... Um, I mean, people were making judgment whether or not we could be into combat and uh, into infantry. And... Because they didn't know the the narrative was, you know, we don't want women to come home from missions in body bags. Well, it's just as disastrous if a man comes back. And, you know, those are risks that soldiers and officers take. And that's just part of our our, our job. Yeah, there's been a lot of assumptions about what society can take when it comes to women, hasn't there? 
and and what women can do. I, I was wondering, there obviously weren't any Marines back when you joined. There were no women senior officers. Uh, uh, but were there other role models that you could look up to? Uh, uh, were there men or women that, that you could sort of relate to or, or who worked as mentors for you? Um, you know, it was quite lonely because it probably weren't. And because it was quite a competitive environment, there are not a lot of people who were out there to help, to be honest. Um, what I did was, and as, as I advise others now, you may not see somebody that you, you couldn't see somebody that you admire, some qualities that you admire, but you mightn't get the complete package in one person. So, yes, I did have some colleagues and, and friends who, who did help and were supportive. Absolutely. Um, but essentially, I, I found that I was pushing myself. I'll give you an example. When I was in the this battalion, when I started first, um, people were being identified as platoon commanders for recruit platoons that were coming in. And I was bypassed. And I just didn't, I didn't notice it immediately. Um, but then I did question it and I asked for an interview with the battalion commander who was a lieutenant colonel. I'm a mere second lieutenant. And um, he said, well, that's just the way it is. And I said, uh, no, that's not good enough. I came through an integrated class, etc. So uh, I then asked for an, in an interview with the brigade commander and subsequently had a good interview with him. And then he came back. He said he'd think about it, came back and he said, not so sure because I don't think that I'd like my daughter to be training um, or working with recruits. And I said, your daughter is a civilian, sir. I'm a trained officer. So long story short, I got to train them. And it was the best forms of time. And this is what junior officers should be doing is training soldiers, um, you know, conventional warfare, etc. It's just what should happen. It's the natural progression of an infantry officer, for sure. So at times I had to challenge of course, but but you then also joined the infantry, which you could say is, is traditionally a very male, even now, I guess, a very male-dominated service. Um, I was wondering if you could talk more about your general experiences as, as a woman in the military. Do you feel that you've had to adapt always to an existing culture or to what extent have you had an impact on, on the traditional military culture? So I think in... in you know, that is a consideration that I've heard people speaking about, that adaptation is that you actually change to suit the culture that you're living in. But I, I feel that I ha have been a disruptor all the time. I've asked questions. I don't want to do things the way they have always been done, because if they are illogical to me, I'm sure they're illogical to a lot of people. So I've always questioned things. And people ask then about, you know, what type of leadership have I got? And is it different because I'm a woman? It's different because I'm Maureen O'Brien. I don't believe it's different because I'm a woman. And I actually think a lot of men tie themselves to a manly approach to, to leadership, which may not suit them. What I say is my leadership is authentic to me. When I look at your CV and your background, that's one of so many the first woman too. Uh, moments in your career and I, I was wondering to you know are, are you happy to talk about those or, or are you just really sick and tired of being the first woman to uh, rather than I'm I'm Maureen O'Brien and I've, I've I have this position and whether I'm a man or a woman doesn't matter 
I, I, you know, it's a combination of both. I, I do get tired of people saying the first. It's not something I set out to do. I just, if people retire ahead of you, that's what happens. You, ultimately, somebody has to be the first to do things. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and I think, though, when I do speak, and I'm very conscious of the fact that when I was the first battalion commander in our in Ireland, first infantry battalion, that it was important that I was seen. So I visited a lot of posts and I was seen as a female lieutenant colonel. So as a role model, that is extremely important to both men and women uh, to see that this can be done. I mean, I'm a normal person from a normal town. But as you grow through those different missions and your seniority grows, um, your experiences change as well. And, you know, whether the f- I don't set out to be the first, I still have to do the work. You know, I mean, you can celebrate all you like and you can talk, one can talk about the first, but I still have to do the work. I found it so interesting when you briefly mentioned that your experience uh, in leadership and as a commander has changed with different positions, different levels of command. And I, I was wondering if you can uh, help us uh, understand that a little deeper and talk about a few experiences. You mentioned first your first posting was as a platoon commander and then you've gone through all different levels of command until you, you've been the force commander. Uh, how, how has that shifted your perspective? Another lesson I learned from a, a sergeant major who said to me once, we were waiting for a decision from somebody and he said, you know, sometimes soldiers just need to be led and, and just give us a decision. You know, we were waiting for a decision. And, and you know, those are valuable lessons. So I always say that for me, making decisions as a leader are quite easy if there's nobody's life on the line. Um, so every decision is quite easy. And not to be afraid to change your mind. So I grew into me, then got the confidence to know that what I was doing was right, the right approach, and I was successful. So it was a learning experience about me uh, as a leader and growing with that experience. I'm not sure a lot of a lot of other people, a lot of guys actually are happy to admit that, that, that they may not have an authentic leadership style. But I think maybe as a, as a woman, because I was treated different at the start, I had an opportunity to sort of interrogate myself about that and be aware of how I was leading and how I was making decisions. So I suppose being different at the start allowed those opportunities. I'm, I'm assuming many of your male colleagues, they, they simply have that trust from their, their colleagues just by being very similar to them and, and going through the same training while you've always had to sort of fight for, for your right to be somewhere or, or to express the, the professionalism and, and the quality of your work. Uh, is that right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I used to say as a cadet, and I remember this, you know, if you, were a mark, if you got good scores on the, when you were firing the rifle, um, if a guy got the same score, you'd have to do it with your standing on your head to be considered to be equal to the score that they got. You know, I was frustrated with that kind of thing. And yes, because there are fewer of you, certainly at the start, you are certainly under more scrutiny. Um, I suppose that's a natural thing. But I think that's what made us what we were. Now, there can be too much of that. And some people, as it happened, the six of us could cope with that. But that's one shouldn't be treated so differently that you feel you have to justify yourself. And um, 
The trouble is that when you go in, um, in on a course, it's a competitive environment. And if there were no women there, there would still be that dynamic between men as well. You know, that some might feel they ought not be there. You know, this imposter kind of syndrome stuff. And I often say to myself that whatever I'm feeling, I know there are men feeling the exact same thing, the exact same thing, but they're not under the same scrutiny. But after a while, you kind of forget about it because you listen, you, as I said, you still have to do it. It's difficult. Just if you're like, but I was dedicated to my work and I worked hard. I know that you've you've talked about the importance of having both men and women within the military. Uh, can you talk a little more about that? And why is that important? And, and um, how do you execute a, 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 a gender balanced leadership or a gender sensitive uh, leadership style? So I, I remember speaking to to a cadet at the time. I said, male cadet, when I was a cadet, I said, you know, your mother is a woman. Your sister, if you have one, is a woman. So why are you saying those things to me? So what is it about the military that made that man turn hyper masculine, that he had more right to be there than I did? And that actually is their problem, not my problem. Um, so I think it's important that the that there are mixes in the in the training. But first of all, it's a rights based thing. Everyone has a right to be there, whether you're a man or a woman. That's my opinion. And that's that's how how it should be. Now, it's very difficult to get women to join the Defence Forces and it's not just the Irish Defence Forces, it's throughout. Despite the fact that all jobs are open to women, it still is very difficult. Well, it's not a good paying job, you know, and, um, you know, you do have to go overseas in the Irish Defence Forces in order to get promoted. It's just one of our conditions. So if you don't have women, say, in an induction training, you, the men could think that this is the way it is, this is... This is normal. It's not normal. You have to work alongside women. And when you are deployed overseas, you work with women. The people that you're there to serve, half of them are women. So it's normal. It's a reflection of society. And I I think that a force should be a reflection of society, either the society that they're they're come from or the society that they will be dealing with in an overseas mission. I I was wondering, um, because... You've talked about the numbers game <laughs> a number of times and that it's not just about numbers and it's not just about adding women and stirring. And and that's something I found in my research as well, that there are those countries who have been quite good at recruiting women, who have a fairly high percentage of women in the in their armed forces, but their, their culture and their... Uh, gender sensitivity within that organization is is the same as it was before. There are other armed forces who have done quite a good job of implementing a gender perspective on operations, on the organization that has a fairly gender balanced sort of culture, but they're still failing to recruit women. So, so to me, there's not necessarily a correlation between these two, uh, which means you have to work on both. But I was wondering Uh, to what extent you feel that a gender-balanced leadership or gender-balanced organization has an impact on on outcome of operations? Does it make the armed forces more effective to integrate women and gender perspectives on operations? So now they're a valuable asset. Women, I mean, my thesis was you can't just add women and stir. But as a battalion commander, as a force commander, I want to have women in an engagement platoon so that I can find out the information that's in the community. It's actually really about force protection, understanding the intelligence gathering, essentially, as well. 
So um, understanding the environment that you're working in. So, you know, we what we say is that in operations that having including women in, is more efe- efe- efficient and more effective. But, you know, putting quantitatively, qualitatively improving that is going to be very difficult. But by the way, I don't want to prove it. I'm not looking for permission to have women in the, in, in the force. They are there. They will be there. It, it, sometimes I find that um, the approach to a lot of these women, these issues about women and inclusion is, please let me in because we can do a good job. And in fact, we can do better. We can really do better in that job than, than a lot of guys can. But that's immaterial because you have a right to be in this job uh, as, as well as everybody else. Um, but again, that kind of attitude stereotypes women to particular roles. If I had listened to that all the time, I mean, in my thesis, I, I asked women who, who were being put into simic roles, specifically because they were women, if they felt that would uh, enhance our, uh, their careers. Absolutely not, because they were then pushed into this stereotypical role. And they were viewed in a particular way, not in the the manly way, we'll say. And they felt they weren't special. They felt that, you know, there are a lot of people who have special skills, like everyone has skills, the strengths and the weaknesses. And uh, going to the strengths is important. If a woman is a trained soldier and has a skill in civil military affairs, perfect. If a man is trained and has a skill there. Perfect. But don't just say she's going into an engagement tune or, or because you assume that a woman has these characteristics. And just because she's a woman, she, she inherently has this skill. She doesn't necessarily have that. So I, I would really love to ask you, uh, General, uh, what is the UN perspective on on women in the military and in peacekeeping? Uh, and and of course, Resolution 1325 and, and gender in, in military organizations in general. So um, we have um, the, there's a UN gender parity strategy, but there's a military or uniform personnel gender parity strategy as well. And that calls for um, a sliding scale upwards of representation of women in, um, in staff officer roles, military observer roles, but also contingents. I think this year we should have 20% of our staff officers and military observers should be female. And and that's on target in some countries, yeah, and in some missions. And it's very difficult for that to happen. But listen, it's it's going upwards. For example, I I am ensuring that all of the military police units include females. It is absolutely imperative, absolutely imperative. When you've got females in the um in the force, that there is military female military police as well. It's just imperative. I think you've you've given us quite a lot of food for thought. I, I think you've emphasized the importance of allowing women to do the same job. So no separate standards, no separate tasks uh, or trainings. Uh, also emphasized the importance of, of not stereotyping or, or sort of role casting women into positions based on stereotypical views of what men and women should do or are capable of doing. And if you say that women make the armed forces more effective, well, then the question will always come, okay, how can you prove that? And, and you always have then have to prove that you're adding something to an existing organization. But no one asks the men to what extent they make the organization more effective. So it's it becomes a really unfair burden 
an extra burden on women because you've also emphasized some of the challenges that you've had over your career in, in being questioned and scrutinized to an extent that is has been quite impressive to 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 sort of crash through all of those glass ceilings uh, that I believe you've you've crashed through. I used to call them armored armored ceilings, <laughs> armored not glass. glass ceilings. Or, yeah. Thank you so much for your time. And I was just wondering, are there are there any sort of final thoughts that you would like our listeners to to carry with them? Yeah, I, I, actually, there are because you know. Um, what we found as a problem with recruiting more females is we call them the gatekeepers are the people who decide whether or not their sons and daughters can do X, Y, and Z are the mothers and the fathers. So if I could reach out to the mothers um, whose daughters may want to join the forces, please don't just um, dismiss it. It's a very challenging job, but there are so many opportunities and it's for them. If it's for them, they'll, they'll thrive. Thank you so much again, uh, General, and have a wonderful rest of the day. Thank you very much. This was our last episode of the season. Thank you so much for listening. The third season of Seeking Peace has been a production of Georgetown University's Institute for Women, Peace and Security. In collaboration with the United Nations Department of Peace Operations and Our Secure Future. This season was produced by Wonder Media Network.